Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Zadrov's tweet ya, Tavarishcha. Why did Pravda only have six pages in each newspaper during the bad old days of the Soviet Union? because they only printed the good news. But seriously, this is Charles Kimball from the History of Southeast Asia podcast. In my podcast, I just gave a biography of another famous communist, Ho Chi Minh. But when I was in college, I studied Russian history, so the eastern border is right up my alley. I have listened to it from the start. What Kristaps shares reinforces what I learned in school because his family lived through it all. Now listen and enjoy, and when you're done, come to my podcast and hear about the 11 nations between India, China, and Australia. We're just now getting to the exciting events of the 20th century. Das Vananya! The Bolsheviks did not seize power. They picked it up. Adam Ulam. Greetings, comrades. Today's episode will be a concentrated one, because this is 1917, and things are finally starting to happen here, and we need to find out how the Bolsheviks picked up the power. But, so you know, we are entering a new phase of our Man of Steel series. This is going to be a much more political phase, much more concentrated. So I think a bit of a recap is in order here. So far, we have followed Stalin from his childhood, where he nearly killed his dad, hated his dad, was terribly rude to his teachers in the Orthodox seminary, as a young man, was extremely gorgeous, but got into a ton of trouble, uh, organized massive heists, criminal underground, went into exile for multiple times, became a professional crime lord, escape artist, and an underground journalist, run criminal organizations, and did a lot of crazy stuff proving that he always is patient, plays the long game, and has no idea what are these things called emotions or morality whatsoever, especially after his uh, first uh, wife died very tragically. 
We have also seen a bunch of exploits on how people are trying to abuse the history of Stalin, both for his praises and for his criticism. But yeah, I hope that this this uh, kind of this multi-part series on how Stalin became who he was up until this point that they really gave you some idea on on this whole situation because so far Stalin has proven his organizational skills in a very criminal undergroundy fashion. He has also proven himself to be extremely courageous and brave, uh, with a lot of chutzpah and and uh, the ability to just pull things out of thin air and make things happen. He's also proven to be extremely rough and, you know, you could call him a macho man, but in a very, uh, very weird and violent kind of way. He's truly a man of steel. By this point, since his birth, up until 1917, he has made himself Stalin, but he is not yet the Stalin that we shall see in the following 20 years of his life. But first we have to get through the revolution part. In 1917 up until 1922, yeah, truly decades will happen at this point. So let's not waste any more time and get on with this. So, last we left Stalin with his fellow Bolsheviks in Achinsk, where they were placed in exile after they weren't called into the army. Obviously, when they heard about the February events, which we fully explored in our Lenin series, then, on the 8th of March, they left their exile and moved back to Petersburg as soon as possible. In the 12th of March, Stalin, with his fellow exile buddies, arrived in the capital, they made it their way earlier than Lenin, Trotsky, Bukharin, and Znovyov. Stalin goes to live with the Aluliev family, as he's an old friend of theirs, and is given a separate room in their apartment, where he will later be joined by Lenin, as Lenin will be followed by the February government. The Aluliev memoirs state that Stalin had changed during his four years in exile. His face had grown thinner, his cheeks had hollowed, but although he had aged, his eyes apparently were the same, and, quote, that mocking smile never leaves his lips, it is still there, end quote. So he arrives there, sets his, sets his shop up, and on the next day, 13th of March, the bureau of the Central Committee, which just has moved out from the deep, deep underground, puts Stalin right back in the editorial of the newspaper Pravda. At the same day, that newspaper prints out an article bashing the February regime newspapers for spreading lies and libel on the Bolshevik newspapers. The fight with the Social Democrats and Mensheviks and everything else is on now. Stalin also gets some more political power. Two days later, on the 15th of March, he is elected to the Presidium of the Bureau of the Central Committee of the Bolsheviks, and I will just be saying CK Bureau from now on. A lot of the leaders of the future Soviet state and important historical figures enter this Bureau at this point. Molotov, Shlyapnikov and Zalutsky for one. Kamenev, however, isn't there because, quote, of his involvement in the court process against the Bolshevik faction of Duma, end quote. On the 18th, Stalin is also delegated to the executive committee of the Council of the Petersburg Workers and Soldiers Deputies. Well, technically, you know, uh, this council, it's a Soviet, okay? Soviet, like I've said multiple times before in the show, is literally council in Russian, and uh, that's where the Soviet Union comes from. Which is weird, as you know, uh, I thought about this recently, and I have no idea why that state wasn't officially called the Union of Socialist Councils in English, but uh, I guess you like the word Soviet or something, as that sounds more Russian and intimidating. 
Anyhow, Stalin, for about three weeks until the arrival of Lenin, will be the number one figure in the Bolshevik party. But Lenin will arrive, exported and sent here from Germany, with all the money and whatnot in his secretive armored train on the 3rd of April. And Stalin is obviously leading the awaiting committee here, and will also lead him to the main greeting event, which is an extremely famous greeting event. This happens in 23 and 10 minutes, late evening, in the Finland station of Petersburg. There, Stalin was given a triumphant reception with banners, red flags, delegations and troops presenting arms in his honor, while the railway station itself was decorated with uh, triumphant red and gold arcs and um, in a scene kind of strangely looking like, you know, uh, other famous returns which will happen later. Like, this return is just very, very massive. Uh, Yeah, they now have, like, um, the square where he arrived is now called Lenin's Square and they have a statue of Lenin there as well. Lenin made a triumphant entry onto the revolutionary scene and clarified his position immediately. You see, after listening to a speech from a Menshevik who expressed the hope that Lenin would not compromise the unity of the revolution, Lenin started to speak. He ignored appeals for unity and denounced the imperialist war, soon to become a civil war, that would rage through Europe. The collapse of imperialism, according to him, was imminent. Quote, The Russian revolution which you have accomplished is its beginning, the start of a new era. Long live worldwide socialist revolution. And to the sound of the Marseillaise and the shouts of like thousands, surrounded by all these banners and everything, and in the light of a searchlight, he came out of the station and, you know, he tried to get into his waiting Rolls Royce. Very awesome for a socialist leader, obviously. But the crowd would like literally have none of this. He had to climb onto the car roof and make another speech. Quote, Participation in the disgraceful imperialist slaughter, lies, deception, capitalist robber barons and everything else is our enemies. End quote. He was then taken to the mansion of the ballerina Kshashinskaya, who was a former mistress of the Tsar, which had been commandeered by the Bolsheviks. A wise choice, since it was literally one of the few establishments in the capital, which still had a supply of heating fuel by this point. And yeah, now um, now we have to again mention Lenin here, because uh, Stalin and Lenin will work, work together. See, Lenin's dogmatism in a way, narrow-mindedness, those are unattractive qualities. More appropriate to a prophet than, you know, a great political thinker, and uh, Lenin was not one. His genius, and the word is, like, really not too strong, was, was elsewhere. Despite the ideological apparatus, which put blinkers upon most of lesser political figures, Lenin always man- managed a clarity of analysis which was never clouded by doctrine or by sentiment, and which basically enabled him to pinpoint tactical priorities. At a time uh, when Russia was full of confused, bemused persons of, of goodwill, though, and varied political persuasion, who suddenly found themselves in command, if not like complete control of a vast empire, Lenin was there and he was just clearly towering above the rest. He never forgot that the important thing was to win. Winning was his number one priority. He liked to win and he liked to win big too. He never forgot this. Which is why his, like, really, in my opinion, chief contribution to the political science and our theories in total is uh, is just not in his kind of ideological writings, which I have read a lot, but um, but in something that's um, like a, a phrase in Russian, "кто кого," literally, "who whom," which means um, "who will eat whom." 
His most impo important characteristic was a pragmatism, which never obscured his sense that the final end was to serve humanity. In more ways than one, as you can understand the sentence. The incarnation of this kind of clarity of purpose and narrowness of mind, this, this, you know, he had all this going for him, and he viewed everyone and everything in terms of their relation of the coming revolution. You know, we can, we can kind of summarize that this was this ruthless sense of kto kavo, together with a refusal to be sidetracked by sentiment or moral scruple, that, you know, these were the qualities which Stalin saw in Lenin, and, you know, which won his admiration. A historian, Boris Bajanov, uh, kind of was there, and, and he placed he placed a nice view on all this situation, uh, and he kind of has, uh, has this opinion on, on Lenin, which brings out his resemblance to Stalin, and um, takes us a long way from kind of this icon of this genius smiling Ilyich, which is often created by official biography and used by fans of uh, our dear Lenin today. Because yeah, well, treat this treat this thing as a as a way of reminiscing about our previous series. Quote: <clears throat> I was amazed at how much Lenin had in common with Stalin. They both had a maniacal thirst for power. Everything Lenin did was shot through with the leitmotiv to seize power, whatever, and stay in power, whatever. Admittedly, Stalin may have aspired to power to exploit it like Genghis Khan without burdening himself with suppositions as <clears throat> and what might this power be for? While Lenin hungered our power in order to possess himself of a mighty and unique instrument for the construction of socialism. I think there is something in that. Personal considerations played a lesser, different role in Lenin's aspirations. Bajanov comments unfavorably on Lenin's moral sense, which was not high, since he considered no method unworthy of himself. But um, the morals that Lenin introduced to the party became common currency among its leadership both during and after the revolution, and Bajanov finds them both in Zinoviev and Stalin later. So, you know, they are very, very close there. However, not everything was completely fine in Lenin's and Stalin's relationships. You see, while on the train en route to the capital, Vladimir Ilyich told the Bolsheviks meeting him that he's not satisfied with the work of the main Bolshevik newspaper, Pravda. You know, the one where Stalin is the lead editor, and, oh, by the way, he's on the train too. But, but, this is probably, probably, the only case in our story so far where Stalin is actually more moderate. You see, Lenin doesn't like the fact that Pravda, at this point, is currently stay saying that the Bolsheviks should apply political pressure in the newly made democratic temporary government. Lenin wants to hear calls of immediate bloody overthrow of that government. Stalin himself had this to say about this meeting, quote, I have never denied that I had some doubts in the March of 1917, but these doubts lasted only for a week or two, until the arrival of Lenin, and on the April conference of 1917, I already was standing together with Comrade Lenin against Kamenev and his opposition group. I also wrote about this multiple times in the party press too. So you know, Stalin is on the long game again. Lenin wants a coup, Lenin gets a coup. Just let Stalin organize it and work peacefully. The fact that he was able to change his opinion swiftly was also seen on the 4th of April meeting of the leading party organizers, where Lenin reads his <clears throat> about the tasks of the proletariat in the given revolution, the famous April theses, which we also spoke about earlier, so I'm not gonna read them here. Stalin fully supports those and publishes them in Pravda, obviously, and argues against Lenin's critics Kamenev and Kalinin. And also, on the 18th 
of April on the Birzevoy uh, Stock Exchange Square on the Vasily Island in Petersburg, there is another Bolshevik demonstration where Stalin has a speech about the temporary government. From the speech, quote, <clears throat> Revolution cannot make everyone and everything satisfied. It always satisfies the working masses on the one hand, and on the other hand, it holds a big stick with which it beats the open and secret enemies of these masses. This is why one needs to choose. Either you're together with the working folks and poor farmers for the revolution, or you are with the capitalists and local governments against the revolution. So you know where this is going. From the 24th to the 29th of April, on the 7th All-Russian Conference on the Bolshevik Party, Stalin, obviously, gives many speeches to support the Lenin's course of action towards the socialist revolution, but he also gives a report on the national question. You know, with the book that he mostly didn't write about the issues that he wasn't informed about, and was put there because he's Georgian. Anyhow, Stalin here proclaims the idea of one united proletariat party in a multinational Russian government. Lenin here speaks that the party doesn't care about separatist movements. If Finland, Poland, and Ukraine leaves Russia, there is nothing bad about it. But he is opposed by Felix Dzerzhinsky, the first leader of Cheka, the NKVD, who says that all there's <clears throat> that there are noticeable traces of battle against socialism in these separatist movements because it is always the bourgeoisie that wants to build nation states and not the proletariat the idea gains some support and there's a proposal to replace the official bolshevik slogan about the self-determination of nations with that of <clears throat> down with the borders stalin who obviously supports the leninist position because you know they're so close philosophically declared that, quote, the question about the rights to leave shouldn't be mixed with the question about the usefulness of leaving in those or other circumstances. Now, I personally would be totally against the Caucasus Republics leaving Russia. And now some, um, some tangents on the meta level. You know, I'm using Russian sources for these shows, okay? I have found multiple full biographies of Stalin in Russian, which I can trust and compare and use for the show, in addition to my usual, usual collection of books, documentaries, and various press thingies. And I like to add here that uh, they're by no means all pro-capitalism sources or just objective even, oh no. Uh, I have to dig through some weird stuff sometimes, written by very ideologically-minded historians with obvious biases, who are openly writing about, say, Tbilisi heist and Stalin killing some people with his Bolshevik crime squads, but are presenting those things as unequivocally good. Mostly, that is inside the text that I use, uh, where they kind of post these things, you know, it's included in the text, and I don't mind. But here, here, after this discussion about the national context, in my Soviet, um, kind of a Soviet pro-socialist biography written in 1999, I suppose, there is a commentary inserted by the editor, in bold and a slightly larger font even, uh, which is like so that everyone could see it, it just jumps out and looks really weird. And this author of this biography obviously wants the restoration of Soviet Union. And I will quote his entry just after this, uh, this, and this, uh, position on the national question here, this discussion. Mm. Quote. Life has shown us that real Bolsheviks shouldn't be neutral or ignorant of any separatist movements, because separatism is deadly to the cause of revolution and to the communist idea. So yeah, I'm uh, working with materials written and published by people who hate the fact that my country exists. Yay, now that's fun. 
But yeah, moving on with the story. In this conference, the, a new Bolshevik Central Committee is elected. It consists of Lenin, Stalin, Sverdlov, Zinoviev, Kamenev, Nogin, Fyodorov, and one Smilga. Smilga is a Latvian, by the way, and I shall be, <laughs> I shall be forced to talk about how much Latvians played a role in Bolshevik Revolution. Which I kind of did in Lenin's, Lenin's series, but still, we shall go on in much more larger detail here. Now, May 1917 is a more silent month in Russia. Last more or less peaceful month we'll have in a while, because, uh, like I said in the beginning, decades are about to happen. Politburo of the Central Committee of the Bolshevik Party is created in full here. Uh, that's the organization that will lead the Soviet Union until its collapse. Stalin obviously becomes a member and will not be removed from this status until his very death. This is how Lenin and Stalin truly, completely start working together, and arguing now and then, moving the revolution forward. Stalin's finally made it to the huge leagues. And, on the 14th of May, he gives another speech about the national question in a concert demonstration made in the Estonian Workers' Club in the same Vasily Island where, uh, where you know, before. Man has to party to relax a bit, after all. And another hero of our story arrives back to Russia at this point. Trotsky enters the scene. And again, and again, uh, here I will just use the text as is written in the socialist version of Stalin's biography, because this is glorious. Quote, <clears throat> In May, the world citizen Trotsky, through Canada, returned from his American immigration to Petersburg. In his unflinching attempt to become the leader of the world revolution, Trotsky oriented himself in the situation quickly and became a member of the Bolshevik party. And disregarding his, as Lenin called it, non-Bolshevism, quickly became involved in the leadership of the party, even though he had been in opposition to Lenin throughout his political life. Lenin was able to see right through him, though, as can be seen from Lenin's writings. Lenin said, Trotsky was a Menshevik in 1903, went away from them in 1904, returned to them in 1905, just flaunting the ultra-revolutionary phrases, and again stepped away in 1906. Trotsky is today committing a plagiarism of the ideas from one faction today, from the other faction tomorrow, and so tries to place himself above all of them. Uh, yeah, my Trotskyist fan listeners can go wild now. I should probably make a Trotsky special, too. After all, he was actually also one of my sources in this whole thing. For one, this socialist source also happens to not to mention, for some reason, the return of Bukharin. But he will also play an interesting part in this story. Well, uh, until Stalin literally kills everyone involved. Oops, spoilers. Let's move the timeline forward. We have to get to those killings, after all. <clears throat> From the 3rd to the 24th of June, Stalin is participating in the first All-Russian Congress of the Councils of Worker and Soldier Deputies in Petrograd. This isn't the Bolshevik Congress, no, this is the Congress from which the Duma consists of. From all the Soviets and revolutionaries of one form or another. And Bolsheviks are in the minority here. The majority are Essers with, with 285 delegates and Mensheviks with 248. Bolsheviks only have 105. However, they have got enough ambition to cover literally everyone. Their main work here will be to blast the uselessness of the imperial character of the war, and how terrible could it, would it be to work with the bourgeoisie. And when the leader of the Mensheviks, Tsetarelli, will give a rhetoric question in the Congress, does a political party exist today which can with total conf confidence say that it is ready to take power? 
Lenin will be quick to give out one of his most famous answers, which happens while sitting with crossed arms with nonchalant enthusiasm. <clears throat> or, such a party exists. True, this statement will cause at this point laughter to burst out in the delegates, but as we know, soon they will not be laughing anymore. Everyone else will, as this statement becomes a part of many political jokes in later years, uh, such as this one. Mm. In many Soviet research institutes, by the way, separate research teams were officially called research parties. So the Geological Institute gets a call from the Ministry of Education and they ask for one Ivanov to come to the phone. But there are multiple Ivanovs in the institute, so the secretary asks from which party is he? What? From uh, the communist one, obviously. To which the secretary responds, there is no such party, we do real science here, and drops the phone. Well, maybe not as funny when I translate it into English, but hey, at least <laughs> contains references. But these are Stalin series, so let's look at what he specifically did here in the month of Congress. On the 6th of June, he participates in the extended Central Committee meeting, where he plans to organize a peaceful manifestation of workers and soldiers on the 10th of June, the goal of which would show the Congress that the people are disappointed with the temporary government. In response to this, getting wind of the planned demonstration, on the 9th, the worried Essers and Mensheviks on the Congress raise the question about <clears throat> a secret Bolshevik plot and forbid all demonstrations for the duration of Congress. Because of this, on the night the 10th of June, a secret meeting of the Bolshevik faction is held. Lenin wants to obey the rules of the Congress, but Stalin, being the lead organizer of this massive demonstration, and he loves the things that he organizes, insists that the mass political action should take place. He is even willing to go so far to give in his resignation from the Central Committee of the party as a sign of protest. But his resignation is denied this time, and he is forced to accept the decision to cancel the planned demonstration. He also has to write an article for Pravda, and that very night, late, to publish the cancellation. Obviously, he becomes extremely angry. The protest doesn't take place, but this also makes their supporters way more agitated than before, which will play a huge role on the, later on in the story. The Mensheviks and Essers obviously feel this, and so on the 11th of June, they have a common meeting of their factions, which turns into a bashing of the Bolsheviks. The Georgian Menshevik, Tseretelli, again shines there and declares, quote, That what just happened is nothing else but a plot, a plot to take down the government and an attempt of a coup by the Bolsheviks. We need to disarm them. We can't allow them to have machine guns and rifles. We can't allow a coup to happen. It will end bloody and terrible, end quote. Yeah, this guy knew what would happen. Others call him too paranoid and dismisses his Cassandra truths. By the way, he really knew what would happen. After the October Revolution, he would escape to Georgia, and when during the Civil War in 1921, the Red Army would enter there, he would later escape to France, where he would finish Sorbonne University, getting a law degree and starting his practice. Later in 1940, he would move to the United States of America, where he would still be a lawyer, and also would participate in social democratic events, in the <clears throat> Council of Russian International in Exile. And yeah, he died in peace, outlasting Stalin by six years. He died in 1959, and uh, hey, that's a pretty good fate for a political opponent of the Bolsheviks. On the 13th of June, 1917, the newspaper Soldatskaya Pravda, the Soldier's Truth, a child newspaper of Pravda specifically for the military, publishes Stalin's article, quote, Yesterday and today, a crisis in the revolution, and from the article, <clears throat> 
The development of our revolution has sadly gone into crisis. War and the associated destruction will heat up the class differences to the maximum. The policy of reaching agreements with the bourgeoisie, the policy of sneaky maneuvering between revolution and counter-revolution has shown itself to be unsustainable and pointless. The temporary government has obviously stood on the path of pure, blatant counter-revolution. The duty of revolutionaries is to move together closer and to advance our cause. This call is actually answered on the 18th of June, where around 500 workers and soldiers responding to this move together closer and advance our cause thing, yeah, they take it to the streets of Petersburg with red banners, revolutionary things, and pronounce Bolshevik slogans of mm, all power to the Soviets, down with the 10 capitalist ministers, workers control over the means of production, and time to end the war. Besides the capital, in the same day in Moscow, Kiev, Kharkov, Tver, and other industrial centers of Russia, more demonstrations happen. My socialist sources, which have really gotten annoying by this point, say that they are extremely massive, claiming that they are numbering in thousands. Same slogans, same banners. These apparently show the temporary government how much the Bolshevik influence has grown since April. These guys also say that at the end of June, the Bolshevik party has about 100,000 members and is publishing about 50 newspapers and magazines, with a daily printing run of about 500,000 in total. I doubt these numbers, as many non-socialist sources claim that they are very exaggerated. But the demonstrations definitely happened. And the Mensheviks and Essers now just had to take Bolsheviks more seriously. For one, in the 20th of June... They elect Stalin as being responsible for these things as a member of the executive committee in the Congress, which is a major political achievement, as a basically means of appeasing them. But there is no appeasing of Stalin. Or Lenin, for that matter. But uh, the Bolsheviks soon overplay their hand a bit early. Early in July, the Bolsheviks attempted to seize power. Following Lenin's orders, Stalin, as he later claimed, called on the sailors on the Kronstadt naval base, a Bolshevik stronghold, uh, to gather in the capital for a peaceful demonstration. And, you know, the main guys of this Kronstadt base, these sailors, they wondered whether or not should they, should they bring their rifles with them. And Stalin, well, allegedly, I do have to say, because documentation on this only comes from second, second-hand sources, has replied, quote, <clears throat> Rifles, comrades, it is up to you. We, journalists, always carry our weapons or pencils with us. As for your weapons, you had better judge for yourselves. Yeah, uh, Stalin actually calls himself a journalist here. Well, technically he is, but you wouldn't imagine him ever just actually saying that he's, you know, a journalist. Although, you know, you can imagine Stalin giving an evasive answer. This, um, this sneaky reply is kind of almost certainly the creation of wishful thinking on the part of Stalin or, you know, his biographers as usual. The sailors assembled outside Bolshevik headquarters to be addressed by Lenin, who called for firmness, courage, and revolutionary initiative. The Bolsheviks then laid siege to the Taurid Palace, but revolutionary activity rapidly shaded into the looting of a trigger-happy mob. In the meantime, Lenin had learned that the frontline troops were moving on the capital in support of the provisional government, and it was obvious that the sailors would be no match for them. To make matters worse, some army units stationed in town that had so far remained neutral came out in defense of the provisional government. 
This was enough to persuade the sailors to abandon their demonstration and retire to their base, complete with pencils. The Bolsheviks were now in trouble. No one, no one at this point, believed in the peaceful nature of their demonstration, and they understood that in such stirring times, yeah, they were soon about to be shot, at least, um, like, they were in huge amounts of risk. After pleas to the Petrograd Soviet to defend Lenin, and more importantly, Zinoviev, had fallen on distressingly deaf ears, Zinoviev ran from the building and went into hiding for several months. Stalin asked the Menshevik leader of the Soviets, Tsertelli, the same Tsertelli, because, you know, they're both Georgians, so they, even though they hate each other terribly, you know, as they're Georgians, to help him out. And he asked him to protect the Bolsheviks from the mob. Tsertelli was pleased to inform him that there was no danger of a lynching, but that Bolshevik HQ would be occupied by government troops. The Bolshevik press was shut down, its machinery destroyed, and the sailors meekly handed their ringleaders over to the government. The day after the sailors' demonstration, Lenin, too, went underground. After 24 hours on the run, he reached the Aluliev apartment, and he found Zinoviev there already, uh, speechless with fright. The next day, the provisional government, acting with uncharacteristic and short-lived decisiveness, which should later be their doom, issued a warrant for the arrest of Lenin, Zinoviev, and Kamenev. Stalin, interestingly enough, was not even considered to be bothered with. Yeah, this ends the peaceful phase of the revolution here. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On the 7th of July, in the apartment of Aluliyevs, Lenin, Zinoviev, Hogin, Orjokonidze, Stasov, and Stalin have a discussion on how to react to the arrest warrants. Nogin declares that Lenin and Zinoviev must go to court. Stalin, uh, yeah, he warps reality itself once again. One of my biographies state that he's completely indifferent and plays no role in decision-making. Another one, by Romanovsky, a Bolshevik himself, states that he agrees, but only on the condition that Soviets, uh, all of Soviets, including Mensheviks and and uh, Mensheviks and Essers, guarantee their safety. But later sources, written already in Khrushchev's era, state that he's categorically against this and quotes him. Junkers won't even get them to jail. We'll kill them on the road. We need to hide them safely. Well... Whatever the opinions here, in the end they decide to hide them and, you know, send them in deep underground. Stalin personally shaves Lenin's moustache and beard, then Lenin is given a wig, and then, using makeup, they make him look like the, an average Russian peasant. Zinoviev gets the same treatment, and they both are escorted by Stalin to the train station that takes them to the Finnish town of Sestroketsm, 
I hope I pronounced it correctly, about 30 kilometers north from Petersburg. Krupskraya later will write that Stalin saved the life of Lenin here. Stalin also becomes the Bolshevik CK contact with Zinoviev and Lenin as he's the only one who knows their exact location. Even his political nemesis, Trotsky, admits that, quote, the role of Stalin in this period grew. He reached the heights of a strong, dedicated professional revolutionary. In the years working in the editorial, he wasn't among the thousands who deserted the party, but instead, he belonged to those few hundred that remained. In the 24th of July, there is a publication in the illegal newspaper, Rabochi i Saldat, or Worker and Soldier, with Stalin's call to action. <clears throat> call to ac- the, his call to action is named to all those struggling, to workers and soldiers in Petersburg. And it reads, and I'll read the full text here because it's not that long. Workers, the honorable role of becoming the leaders of the Russian Revolution has fallen upon us. Concentrate and unite the masses around yourselves and gather them under the banners of our party. Remember that in the hard minutes of the days of July, when the enemies of the people have shot at the revolution, the Bolshevik party is the only one that didn't leave the workers' districts. Remember that in these hard days, Mensheviks and Essers were in the camp of those who beat and disarmed the workers. Under our banner, comrades. Farmers, your leaders haven't justified your hopes, they're following the counter-revolution, but you are left without land, because while counter-revolution is the rule, you won't get anything from your local landowners, your Tsarist exploiters. Workers, those are your only true allies, only by joining together with them, you'll get your land and your will, unite around workers. Soldiers, the strength of the revolution is the unity between soldiers and the people, always be with the people and fight together with them, in their ranks, under our banners. Well, end of this. <clears throat> so, uh, from the 26th of July to the 3rd of August, Stalin and Sverdlov, under the instructions from Lenin, lead the new emergency conference of the Bolshevik party, which is happening in Petersburg, illegally. Stalin reads a report about the work of CK, about the political situation in the country, and also has the final word rights in the conference. He's obviously seen as the spokesperson for Lenin here. The Congress figures out that from the time since the April conference, the amount of party organizations in various regions and cities has increased from 78 to 162, and the members of the Bolshevik party have increased from 100,000 to 240,000. Again, numbers are debatable here, but they certainly are becoming more popular. Now, our friend Yosef Vissarionovich is confident in the rise of a new revolutionary movement that will happen very soon. As the revolutionary powers are growing, there will be explosions and there will be a moment when the workers will rise up and gather the poor peasants around them. We'll take up the banner of workers' revolution and open up the era of socialist revolutions in Europe. And he goes on, in anticipation maybe to his own contribution to Marxist doctrine, I guess, uh, because he also declares that Russia did not necessarily require revolution in the West, which was something completely new at this point. The possibility is not excluded that Russia will become the country that blazes the trail to socialism. It is necessary to give up the erroneous idea that Europe alone can show us the way. There is dogmatic Marxism and a creative Marxism. I stand by the latter. And uh, also, on another quoted, often quoted statement, and uh, I seriously consider that this is put in Stalin's mouth later uh, by biased sources, as I couldn't find any any other confirmation there, he also is said to give a quote <clears throat> about uh, some some events on the fourth of July, giving giving some thought of those. 
he apparently tells the conference, but again, I doubt it, but hey, maybe this happened, quote, The provocateurs didn't flinch, but at the same time, the demonstrating masses didn't go outside the boundaries of necessary self-defense. There were no capture of governmental or public institutions. There weren't even an attempt to do so, even though the protesters had immense armed forces and could totally take over not only the institutions, but the city as a whole. Now, yeah, Stalin praising peacefulness of something is not a thing that Stalin would do. That That is what kind of... Uh, Gives me, giving me a lot of doubts about, about this one. But I had to mention it because, hey, maybe, maybe we see a glimpse of, of some, some moderate Stalin or something. But yeah, in general, what, what is the most important thing here is, um, is the fact that he spoke about this Russia being the central part of the socialist revolution that uh, they did not need one in the West and in the Germany. Yeah, that is, that is the fascinating quote of all this situation. See, a few months had brought Stalin a long way from the orthodox Marxist who nodded in agreement with, with Kamenev's view at the timing of the socialist revolution while he was in exile with him, but recent events and the single-minded energy of Lenin had shown him that the predictions of Marx could be adopted um, creatively to meet their particular needs. We also seek an, an, an important second important orientation in his thought. See, the majority of Bolsheviks, especially the Jews among them, and and that's not anything anti-Semitic. It's just that uh, it's, it's their nationality who have like recently aligned themselves with the party. Yeah, those guys. Uh, those guys were internationalists who considered that socialism could only be built in Russia if the revolution should spread to the West, as they were kind of more cosmopolitical-minded people. You know, had better education. Were were really interested in this situation. Yeah, Kamenev, Zinoviev, and Trotsky there. They're sort of the more humane part of the whole revolution affair. But Stalin, well, Stalin was disassociating himself from this uh, internationalism, this, this no borders thing. Uh, he, he considered that socialism could only be built in Russia first. This was kind of appealing to kind of great Russian chauvinism that can never at any stage of Russian history be described as anything less than, well, blatant, to be honest. He now even dropped the hint that Mother Russia could just go on it alone. And yeah, during this whole Congress thing, Stalin reappeared at the Aluliyevs to claim the room they, you know, they had promised him. He moved in with a small basket of belongings, and this comes from the Aluliyevs memoirs, and stayed there for the better part of three months. Often, he would be away for days at a time, reappearing so tired that he would fall asleep with a pipe still alight in his hand, burning a hole in the blankets. Although his sister-in-law's recollections are somewhat summary, she recalls that Stalin often spoke of Siberia. She also describes his sense of humor at this period, which as usual expressed itself in mockery as he imitated the booming northern accent of a country girl staying with the family. He also enjoyed playing with language, inventing nicknames for his friends or addressing the girls by invented names, which have a strange ecclesiastical ring to them, maybe coming back from his, like, education, and here, that's why I started this episode with a recap, because, you know, Stalin's past really formed his views on the future. And I mentioned the Jews here earlier because, you know, they disagreed with Stalin, which would later lead to heavy anti-Semitism by Stalin himself. Yeah, the girls in question, by the way, were becoming increasingly interested in politics as they were, like, growing up. That that was happened here. The older Anna, by this point, was working at the party headquarters, while the younger Nadezhda, though she was still at school, well, one day she just announced to Stalin that she had become a Bolshevik, which was quite new for this at this time. This is the everyday life of Stalin, because, you know, Aliyevs give you a specific, very interesting insight in this, but, um, 
In Amir, in, in, this, in, this, in this period where um, many members of CK, including Lenin, Zinoviev, previously mentioned Trotsky and Kamenev, all these guys, all these more moderate members, all these more international members, all, all, these, um, all these guys who would kind of be described as uh, more oriented about this world revolution thing and, and socialism ideas, yeah, and, well, they're either imprisoned or hiding deep underground, Stalin becomes the de facto leader of the party from early June until the late September of 1917. And, you know, under his command, the party survived the events of July and began to repair itself and started gathering up some forces. And now, before we get to the October, which is gonna take its own separate episode because, oh boy, October Revolution and Stalin's involvement, that's gonna get crazy. But uh, that's for the next episode... But right now, it's time for our Ask Uncle Joe segment. And some of you have sent in emails asking for conspiracy theories. Now I understand we have a lot of paranormal shows on dark myths like Astonishing Legends and Not Alone and Strange Matters and Secret Transmission and many others. I'm sorry if I didn't mention one of, the, one of them or something. But, uh, but yeah, th- there are some. And um, in this segment, I'm ready to uh, give you Two conspiracy theories, one of them true, and one of them just so ridiculous and crazy that it just has to be mentioned. For starters, let's start with the real one. You see, Stalin was always prepared. To not to be assassinated and just to be careful, he used body doubles. These doubles, or political decoys, were people that, well, obviously looked like Stalin. And uh, currently, right now, we have two totally confirmed body doubles that are known to have been used by Stalin over the years. And yeah, for years they would be trained to behave and talk like uh, like Stalin himself. They had their hair and mustache trimmed like his and appeared instead of the leader on many occasions. The first confirmed double was a man named Rashid who was recruited by the KGB once they heard that he looked like Joseph Stalin. He spent two years training with an actor who played Stalin's role in his propaganda films. Rashid appeared in media events when Stalin had more important things to do. And Rashid also claimed that there were other doubles who lived in the dictator's villa near Moscow. After Stalin's death, Rashid moved to a small isolated city and shaved his mustache. Growing old, he lost his hair, but he still clearly remembered Stalin. And this body double died in 1991 at the age of 93. And he never met another double of the dictator, but he remembers and reports that he clearly knew that they existed. The second confirmed double told his story publicly in 2008 after he got permission from the Russian government. His name is Felix Dadayev, and the world really never knew about his existence until he came forward with the story. Felix became Stalin's double when he was slightly older than 20. He was serving as a soldier in World War II, he was badly injured and taken to the hospital. Here he was approached by the NKVD, the predecessor of the KGB, and given new orders. Felix was proclaimed dead, and he was taken to Kremlin to practice for his new role. His family was then told that he had been killed in the war, and so his study began. He was born in Dagestan, he was a former ballet dancer and juggler, and he now studied how to behave like the leader again, under special training with the people who played him in propaganda films. Stalin personally requested his training, and even though there was like a 40 years difference, difference in their ages, Felix still managed to pull it off. With makeup on his face, he was dressed exactly as Stalin, and Dadayev attended meetings all around Russia. He even traveled to Yalta for the famous conference, but only for the media. His flight was made public, and real Stalin traveled in Yal- to Yalta in secrecy. 
In his statements from 2008, the double said that the only difference between him and Stalin were the ears. The double had smaller ears than the dictator. The Daya was so good in his role that even some of Stalin's closest acquaintances sometimes weren't able to tell the difference. The only thing different was the voice, but in absence of big media coverage at the time, this went unnoticed. Felix Dadayev kept his secret until he was 88 years old, because he was obviously fearing for his life. As he said, he was still frightened that the KGB or even Stalin's ghost might hurt him. That's a quote, Stalin's ghost. You know, he warps reality, as we all have noticed so far, so hey, uh, I would be quite afraid of Stalin's ghost myself. Now, when the Dayev's story went public, the FSB supported his story. And, you know, ex-KGB members also kind of came forward and admitted that yes, yes, he was telling the truth. The Dayev made several interviews and wrote an autobiography. And, yeah, that book was also published with, with some permission from the authorities. He stated also that there were four total body doubles employed to imitate Joseph Stalin. Felix admitted that even though he was practically kidnapped by the secret police, he still had been very proud of his resemblance to Stalin and his new role. So, you know, we have two confirmed, totally known body doubles of Stalin, and they all say that there were many more, which we have never heard about, so it's um, kind of interesting. And yeah, if you haven't listened to my episode 18, when I speak about how Putin might actually be dead, or how he uses body doubles, that's a weird one, because, you know, sometimes I like to delve into the weird myself. Yeah, you should do that now, because really, this this whole new thing, when I researched about these body doubles, yeah, adds a lot of credibility now, doesn't it? Uh, by the way, yeah, it's interesting, because we also know that Hitler employed body doubles, and that one of them, one of them was actually killed after the end of World War II, just to make sure that, uh, that you know, that, that Hitler would be dead. So they killed his body double, you know, just in case. But this is kind of the, the interesting real conspiracy theory. And, and then, then there is the weird stuff, okay? <clears throat> there is a book by Annie Jacobson called Area 51. And apparently it is based on interviews with scientists and engineers who, um, allegedly to this book, worked in Area 51, and trust me, this is Stalin-related, <clears throat> the, the secret base in Nevada Desert. <laughs> this book dismisses the alien story and puts forward the theory that Stalin was inspired by Orson Welles' radio adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel War of the Worlds, and according to the book, he made a plot, and he was involved in a very secret plot together with Mengele. Okay. According to the book, the plot started after the Soviet Union seized from Germany at the end of the war the jet-propelled single-wing Horton H0229, a fighter said to be the forerunner of the modern B-2 stealth bomber. Uh, something Nazi Bell related to if you listen to those episodes on the paranormal shows. This is where Mengele enters the story. The Nazi doctor who experimented on prisoners in Auschwitz and fled to South America after the war was supposedly enlisted to create a crew of grotesque child-sized aviators in return for a eugenics laboratory. The book says that the plane was filled with alien-like children aged 12 or 13 whom Stalin wanted to land in America and cause hysteria similar to, like, the famous 1938 broadcast, even though now we know that that broadcast and panic was mostly fake. But the plane, remotely piloted by another aircraft, crashed, and that Americans hushed up the incident. 
And yeah, Jacobson uses uh, as her source someone who's claiming to be a retired engineer from the former defense company EGNG, which apparently has handled the United States government's most sensitive projects, and he said that he was put onto the Roswell Project in Area 51 in 1978. So, Ms. Jacobson writes, quote, They found bodies alongside the crashed craft. These were not aliens, nor there were consenting airmen. They were human guinea pigs. Unusually petite for pilots, they appeared to be children. Each was under five feet tall. They were grotesquely deformed, but each in the same manner as the others. They had unusually large heads and abnormally shaped oversized eyes. And this comes just from one article of this, because when I found out about this idea that, yeah, Stalin and Mengele are creating Roswell, it's like, it's like Christmas for conspiracy theories, it's, it's insane. And, and here, here's from some another interview, uh, that she gave to, to another media. Quote, the child-sized aviators in this craft that crashed in New Mexico were the result of Soviet human experimentation program, and they had been made to look like aliens, a la Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, and it was a warning shot over President Truman's bow, so to speak. In 1947, when this would have originally happened, the Soviets did not yet have the nuclear bomb, and yeah, they only got it in 1949, stolen from the Americans, and Stalin and Truman were locked in horns with one another, and Stalin couldn't compete in nuclear weaponry yet, but he certainly could compete in the world of black propaganda, and that was his aim, according to my source. What is first-hand information is that he worked with these bodies of the pilots, and he was an eyewitness to the horror of seeing them and working with them. Where they actually came from is obviously the subject of debate, but if you look at the timeline with Joseph Mengele, he left Auschwitz in the January of 1945 and disappeared for a while, and the suggestion by the sources that Mengele had already cut his losses with the third rake at that point and was working with Stalin. And on the fact on why the Soviets would have, would have done this alien hoax, uh, <clears throat> quote, The plan, according to my source, was to create panic in the United States with this belief that a UFO had landed with aliens inside of it. And one of the most interesting documents is the second CIA director, Walter Bedell Smith, memos back and forth to the, to the National Security Council, talking about how the fear is that the Soviets could make a hoax against America involving a UFO and overload our early air defense warning system, making America vulnerable to an attack. Yeah, how's them cookies? Like this is this is the best thing ever. I don't know. Um yeah, and she really claims that the book is non-fiction and that this is kind of, you know, that this somehow makes more sense than aliens. I'm really sorry, but uh if you make if you make a story, a conspiracy theory that somehow makes less sense and is less believable, than the aliens, then, um, then yeah, I uh, I have to give some applause there. But hey, if if and and that someone will definitely draw the conclusion if Stalin used body doubles, then this is all completely true. But this is just 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 crazy and uh like I don't know you had the red red uh, scare there in America, but uh, yeah, this is the most funniest uh, kind of consp- conspiracy theory that I could find out there. Hey. And that's not involving his death, but, you know, don't want to speak about his death just yet. We we have to, you know, we have to give Stalin a proper burial after all. But, yeah, if you ever look look around Area 51, then you might notice that it's actually all the results. If you see something strange in disguise, might be the results of Joseph Mengele working together with, with Joseph Stalin. Like the 
two Joseph brothers or something. <laughs> like like rights or something. Oh, I can't even. This is super funny. Okay, well that's that's a pretty nice note to end up with another Stalin episode with the conspiracy theories. Please send in your questions. Uh, also, the parcels with with souvenirs have been already sent to the first pack of Patreon supporters. So if you mailed me your address in Patreon messages, then yes, I have sent something to you. Please respond when you receive it. Uh, thanks to all the other patrons. Thanks to everyone. Visit our homepage, theeasternborder.lv. Uh, you can buy, you can donate to us there via PayPal. You can buy our T-shirts, which make great Christmas gifts, together with uh, together with like mugs and everything. Um, yeah, stay safe and uh, happy winter for you, I suppose. Okay, until next time. Do svidanje, tovarish. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.